Hey, this is Steve Balton. You're here on my turning point where this week, really honored to be joined by Josh Lloyd Watson from the UK band Jungle. This is an amazing band. Their new album, Loving in Stereo, is the third consecutive just smash from this group. One of the best live bands out there right now. It's a feel-good record. It's a record you need to hear right away. And a lot of fun to talk to Josh about his painting, his artwork, about the sounds behind this record, the band becoming an independent act, and so much more. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. And man, definitely check out Jungle. How are you? I'm good. It's early in LA, but you're my second interview in an hour. So I guess I have to be awake, dude. <laughs> Coffee <it> up. <laughs> what uh, are you in the UK right now? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a long day. It's the end of a long day. <laughs> uh, so the end of a long day for you, the beginning of a long day for me. Has it been I can a tell long you, day? It was of, great. <laughs> <laughs> is it a long day of press or or a long day of what? Just a uh, general long Just, Monday. Yeah, ju- ju- I, I've decided this week. I'm like, I, you know, I've got to lose a bit of weight. So damn it, I'm going to go to the gym. But I can because I've got busy days. I've got to go at seven, so I've got to be up at six. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> I wish I had straight in with the legs. I'm like, I'm not used to this. <laughs> but it's good, man. It's good to get that. Discipline. It's funny because normally I do my workout first thing in the morning. I haven't gotten to do it yet, so it's like I'm sort of chomping at the bit to do it, but. You know, it, it's interesting for you. I mean, hey, at least you guys are open enough to go to the freaking gym here in California. Shit's a mess. So it's like, you know, I, I mean, are you guys able to at least like, how are things there in terms of COVID? Like, can you actually start anticipating playing shows and all that? Oh yeah, we're we're f- we're fully back in. We're doing we're doing we're we're back to normal here in the UK. <laughs> nice. Literally, uh, I, I I'm I'm into it. I'm, I'm I believe in it. So I mean, I, I, you can't hold it off forever. Do you know what I mean? We're just gotta let the world breathe so have you done any live shows yet no <laughs> no we haven't um we've got some coming up later this month and then the end of the month and then beginning of september but it's looking all right in the uk to be honest with you they've, they've done a lot of uh large-scale festivals and tests and stuff like that and seemed like it all went and they did a huge festival latitude festival and it and you know there was like one case out of like ninety thousand people so like or that's what the press tell us. So <laughs> sometimes it's, you know, run for the hills and other times everything's okay. <laughs> well, that's funny because here in the US, we just had Lala this weekend with 100,000 people. And I think everybody in music is just like sort of sitting on pins and needles like, okay, you know, like what, what was the result? Yeah, what was the result in Lala? Don't know yet. We won't know for a couple of weeks. Did they do like, uh, yeah, I'm just, I just mean... I, I, without going too polit- political, I've been told not to do my political speech on interviews. But I mean, I just worry that we're kind of heading into this world where it's like everything is just becoming more and more documentation. Like I've got to go to an event tomorrow and it's like, show your COVID status. And it's like, it's not necessarily now what I have a problem with that. It's like the mentality of adopting that sort of strategy of control where that takes us in 10 years. You know, when something else comes along and something else happens. And I, I mean, I'm not I'm not massively big on this, but immigration in the UK, it's like, I, I go back and forth between Antwerp, my girlfriend lives there, and it's like, the, they've, they've managed to slip in these upper levels of like, stopping people crossing borders and like, you know, making it like, you're a red country, you're a, you're a green country, you're like, it's just like, <laughs> it's nuts, it's nuts. Well, I mean, look, that's uh, look at what happened here in the States with the immigration and everything. And, you know, like, yeah, 
No, I'm with you. But it's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I'm asking more from the music standpoint in terms of yeah. like just being able to, you know, get out and play and do loving and yeah. share your life. But you guys also have like a Greek theater show booked here in LA, don't you? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I think everything's going ahead as far as I'm aware. Like definitely the UK stuff's going to go ahead. It looks like from from the American stuff that gigs are happening out there. So I, I'm not sure about Canada. I, 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 I've got a feeling that Canada might just be like, we're not ready. Um, yeah, it, it does make planning a world tour quite tricky. I mean, I remember the days where we would go from like Switzerland to Japan to Australia and, and then back to Lola in four days. <laughs> I just, I, it's just not going to happen, Matt, is it? It's just, it's, um, yeah. <laughs> now, I think those days, unfortunately, are done for a while. But for you guys... You know, having had the opportunity now, this was a really interesting thing, right? I don't know. Was most of the stuff written in COVID or produced and written before COVID? Uh, I mean, con- conceived before COVID and then sort of finished sort of l- end of last year. So sort of post the first wave when we thought we were all good, you know. Well, the reason I ask is it's interesting because I talked to so many artists during this last year. And the one thing that most artists agreed upon was, you know, even when they missed touring, there was still this artistic freedom that they had of like, okay, you know, normally you're on a deadline and because, you know, you're not finishing up an album that's going right out on the road, you had more time to play with a record or you had, you know, you, you were given this opportunity to do things that you otherwise, or, you know, you just weren't on the road. So like whether you're David Guetta, who's getting his first summer vacation with his kid in 12 years, you know, or, you're John Bon Jovi, who's like, all right, well, you know, all of a sudden we're not meeting a deadline for an arena tour. So now I've got time to actually go back and write more material. You know, mm. most artists found or Travis Barker, who was like, I just get to play music with my friends all day long. For you guys, did you find that when it came to loving in stereo, because deadlines kept shifting and moving and it's like, okay, well, we're finishing the record, but shit, we're not going on tour for eight or nine months. There's opportunity to do different mm. stuff. Yeah, for sure. I think the uh, the record kind of changed because of that quite... We, we were originally trying to release it in our heads. You know, We wanted to come back quite quickly from the last record because our, our, between the first and second was about four years. So when we kind of um, came, you know, we, we wanted to put it out in March 2020. But as, as you said, the pandemic sort of... Everyone was like, oh, don't do anything, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and it's such a big, big record in terms of its, its energy and its, its live potential that I think that we... we we were like, oh, we can't put this out now because if we put it out now, then um, it, it will be an old record by the time the world recovers from this. And I think that we were quite adamant that we wanted you know, people to enjoy it at the live environment. Having said that, the time off then allowed the record to sit in perspective and, and you grow and your taste changes and, and all of a sudden all the tracks start getting tweaked. And, and uh, this record got better, I, I'd say 30, 40%. All right, so what were the biggest tweaks that came, you know, because you did have more time to, to do it and play with it. And, you know, like you say too, the other thing, right? Like you say, taste change, you start something and normally you have to finish it in a short period. You don't have a month or two to take a, you know, take a month or two off and say, okay, um, you know, now I can go back and listen to it with fresh ears. Yeah. I think, um, we, we changed quite a bit, you know, we changed, um, track listings you know it was it was only late in december uh late in november in um 2020 that we we sort of kind of locked it in and um you know keep moving is a big one that that was like it was a, it was a cool track but it just wasn't a smash you know it wasn't the song it is today and um 
I think that we basically sat on it and was like, oh, this one's this. That was a bit of a, like a lot of them came really quickly. You know, there was a lot of songs that, for example, No Rules, Just Fly, Don't Worry, Goodbye, My Love, which which were which weren't on the record originally, which sort of came out of just having fun in the period where you could just make music. And and the record then had a focus on um, the music that that we loved. You know, music that made us feel something rather than music that was like for fans you know it, it, the perspective of it shifted you know we wanted to then make a record which we which we thought sounded amazing ultimately well but that's interesting so for you then when you go back and look at it you know what are those moments that you found that sort of were as you say for you and those records that sound amazing and it's it's well go ahead on that first and then i'll, I'll follow up so what was the question on that well you know again it's interesting that you say that you know you want to make a record for you that sounded amazing so what were those you know, moments for you, or even when you started to think of those records that you look back on that sound amazing to you, when you look back on those records that, you know, as a kid or whatever it is, or then when you become a professional musician that sound amazing to you, what were those records that sort of become the inspiration for sounding amazing? Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. Records that I think sound amazing. I mean, where do you start with that? It's, um, you know, music or all music that you've liked, you know, like the Tame Impala's first record in the speakers, obviously, influenced us in some way like, like production um you know moguls like jay diller and knowledge and 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 like more hip-hop instrumental beat makers um have a have a huge influence on us to you know it's, it's old soul like you know marvin gay through to kind of like the harmonies and, and, and the feelings from songs from the beach boys and the beatles um you know and those records like really took you on a journey and you know i think that we kind of put a lot of that into our records. There's, there's songs that we like the sound of, you know, and, and, and like the feeling of ultimately music is a feeling. And, um, you know, our tracks that, that, that did that for us, you know, stuff like No Rules and Fire, songs that were a little bit more like avant-garde in terms of their like structure. They're, they're, more, they're almost more instrumentals and, and soundtrack pieces, but with this sort of chaotic energy going on in them. That, 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 and what do you know about me is, again, stuff that we may have like ignored previously had a chance to shine and and when you look back on them they're like yeah that's that's actually really cool do you know what i mean that's what's that's actually going to make the record um and it's the things that you do because you think it's cool not because you think somebody else is going to think it's cool well ultimately though too i think as an artist don't you find that when you do the stuff that you think is cool versus what someone else thinks is cool that ultimately that's the stuff that people gravitate to the most anyway 100%, you know, we came off our, our label XL, you know, which was a great label when we were there. But like, again, it always put me in a position of like, I had to impress somebody else, you know, immediately in front of me before it would get released. And with this record, you know, there was no A&R. We had A&R'd it, you know, there was no, nobody came in with this record and said, oh, I'm not sure. Like we, and, and, that, and that's something I learned from a friend of mine, Inflow. He, he said to me, um, he said to me, like, you take the record to the distributor when it's done, you know, like when you're done with it. You don't give other people a chance to kind of pick and choose whether they like a song or whether they think something's commercially viable. And, and, and that, that for us has ended up us making what I think is our best record yet. Well, that's interesting, too. That's right. This was the first label that you guys did on your own label, or first record, rather. For sure, yeah, and, and when we say label, we don't mean we've started a, a conglomerate. You know, <laughs> yeah. for us, it's for us, it's for us these days. It's just a name to put on the thing to make it vaguely official. You know, you don't you don't really need a label these days. Everything's direct to consumer, direct to you know fan, and and, and once you have a, a fan base, which which we're lucky enough to have, it's um it's it's just about putting great music out and and cutting a little bit of the um 
the the faff. So for you guys as well, it's funny. I mean, do you find that, and you kind of answered this already, but I want you to elaborate a little bit on it, how, you know, having that, uh, that freedom influenced the music. And it's interesting for you then, you know, do, were you surprised at all? Let's put this another way. Were you surprised at all? You know, and there were a couple things that went into it. It's, it's having your own, you know, label and air quotes. Cause like you say, it's not really a conglomerate. It's just a name that you need, but then also COVID allowed you more time. So were you surprised that all, how the way that all these things came in to sort of converge to mm. make, you know, the album so different and to make it so, you know, much more, to basically give you so much more freedom. Were you surprised yeah. at how much more freedom you had? I think, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I was surprised, like there was definitely an air of determination, you know, like with it to, to, to make it better than the last one. And I think that, you know, the freedom thing is it, it's all on your head, you know, like you've got to be responsible for the music. I think even with our second record, we were like, you know, trying to make something that like the label would like, you know, and then all of a sudden it starts to feel a bit mediocre. And then when you take away that parameter, it's like, well, there's nobody there to seek validation from in some way. Not that we did it massively, but it's always in the back of your mind. You know, if, if you hand an article in or something like that, like there's an editor who might be like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, but if yeah. you're writing your own, your own book for yourself, it's, it's, you, you are the, you are the, you are the bottom line, you know? And, um, I think that means that you have to take absolute responsibility for your work uh, rather than waiting for somebody else to sort of tell you when it's wrong, which means you might just take it to 70% and wait and hope somebody kind of says something to make it better or worse. I don't know. But the COVID thing in some way slowed us down initially, initially, like we were like, it was a hard point in the record by that point. We weren't quite finished. It wasn't quite done, but we put these time pressures on ourselves to make it happen. And when COVID hit, it was like, Oh, cool cool, we don't need to finish it. You know, like, we, don't, we, we, we won't put a third out, you know. It was a little bit like, let's give up. And actually kind of gave us a break, you know. It, it took the pressure off. And that allowed us to then kind of gently come back to it, slowly start making music that wasn't for a record. And when you start doing that, you know, a lot of the tracks on the record are made out of, and why they're really good, in my opinion, is because they weren't really made for the record. Because that takes away the pressure. We actually made them because they're fun and they're fun to make, you know. And when you're doing it because you care about it in that way, and then right at the end, you know, I did a mixtape last year called Cosmos, which I I, I didn't really make for um, Jungle or myself, J Lloyd. I just did it as an experiment. And only right at the last minute, I went, okay, cool. Let's just brand it as a J Lloyd thing. You know what I mean? But if I I think if I'd have started that mixtape with having the pressure of like, oh no, this is my first release, like all this shit that you tell yourself, it, it, it puts weird undue pressures on it and you try to make it something that it's not, you know? Uh, yes, yeah, so that's an art question, really. <laughs> you go off on yeah. that one. To no, I know what you're saying and it's interesting because I mean, I think, and that goes back to what I was saying I'm talking about with John Bon Jovi, for example, of having, you know, right, having the additional time to write more songs so it's like you're not under a deadline anymore. So now you're just writing for the sake of like, and it, it, it's been fascinating to find how everybody responded. The Shaky Graves to me have the most interesting because he's like, he's like, dude, he's like, I'm never going to have another year off in my life. Like I didn't want to do shit. <laughs> he's like, this is never going to happen again where I don't, where I have a year where I don't have anything I have to do, you know? Yeah. So it was really fascinating to see how everybody responded to it. But at the end of the day, as an artist, you know, it's very rare that you're not working under deadlines or timelines, you know? Mm -hmm. And even though people think as an artist, you have to, unless you're U2, you know, or Springsteen or something like that, you know, 
or Paul McCartney, who literally is just like, I will put out a record whenever the fuck I feel like it. I will tour whenever the fuck I feel like it. Most working artists do face some sort of timelines or deadlines. For sure. Yeah. I mean, you have to even in this world these days, because if you don't, you know, we basically with the internet and the invention of the internet, we basically invented a relevance machine. Which is like, you know, it's it's not really about, it's about how quick can you put them out now to stay relevant. The game is almost more staying relevant than anything. You know, uh, you see that even with Spotify numbers, you put songs out and it's basically just keeping your monthly listeners to a certain point. You know, albeit you get to an artist that goes above a certain point, you get something like Drake, where it's just like, it just hits the roof and it just stays up on there, you know. But for other artists, they go up and down depending on, you know, competition from new things, you know. It's, uh, the but for you guys then how gratifying is it to know that like you say now you've reached that point that you do have the audience and how much as an artist does that also tie in with the freedom of knowing that you know look we're going to do something different we're going to do something we're going to make music that we want we're going to put in sounds that you know take us back to you know pet sounds or what's going on or you know jay dilla whatever it is and it's like we know that our audience is going to be there and they're going to at least be curious to hear it they may not like every damn thing we do but sure. we know now that they're going to want to hear everything we do. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you know, the thing is with records, which I, I was, uh, sorry, I was explaining to somebody about the other day is like, it's, it's always a snapshot of in time, you know, you know, you get people come back on your third record and then they go, well, I don't like what they're doing now. And, and, and it's sometimes like, you know, both people have changed. The artist and the fan have developed in different ways and they've grown apart. You know, if I look back and I say I love that Stroke second record, you know, even the first record, I was 14, 15, you know, that was 15 years ago. And that was a period of my life where I was like developing and like being open to stuff. And now like the Strokes just put out a new record. It sounds as good as those first records, but but I'm not 15 and I'm not, do you know what I mean? So like, it's it's a time and place that David Byrne of Talking Heads in his book, um, how music works talks about the emotional attachment of time and place and how that is relevant to music. And, you know, fans, fans are fans and they, um, you kind of make new fans in some way. And some fans will always love that moment in their life where they, they attach themselves to your first record, but you know, they're 10 years older now. And like, maybe this sound ain't for them anymore. Or maybe there's a whole bunch of people who've just discovered it. It's always a time and place. All right. Well, let's take this back into the album. I mean, it's interesting for you. Okay, this is what I was starting to get at earlier, right? I went to this event last night, this Disco Oasis event here in, in Southern California, which is curated by a, a fucking amazing event. You know, it's really interesting how events have become so immersive as well. But basically, the whole thing is curated by Niall Rogers and, you know, the music. And what's interesting is you're there and you realize, you know, and I just did a long interview with Niall and we were talking about disco and how it was so maligned and how there was so much hatred about it but it's such a happy music. And obviously there's influence of that on this record. I mean, when you go back and hear this, you know, talk about sort of the upbeat nature of it. And as you say, it's interesting. It's a snapshot in time, you know, for, you know, what a record that was made during a very hellacious time on earth. It's a really upbeat, you know, like positive record. Was it something that you felt like people just needed that? So it's like, we're going to do this. Or was it something that for you guys, you guys needed? I think it's something that we we needed, um, and the the kind of timing of it is sort of serendipity. It's it's something that just happened. Um, uh, I feel like it's a bit of a kind of just an event. You know, we couldn't plan. We didn't know COVID was happening. Like the intention of the record was set forth before COVID happened. 
you know, we were making a, 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 a an upbeat record in terms of its energy levels. And um, obviously the, the, the themes developed and, and they were kind of based on, you know, the antithesis, the opposite of what, what we'd experienced before. You know, our last record was about heartbreak and they were mid-tempo tracks. And like, you know, it, with, with any art, you want to kind of rebel against your last work and, for us, we're like, well, this one ain't about heartbreak because we just did that, you know. <laughs> like, you, you want to go the other way, and, and and so you're looking for new love, and you're looking for spiritual growth, and those those themes start to come in as as the thing, and and it seems like what COVID did was just sort of like it happened to to everybody in the same time, you know. We we obviously left our label, and we we kind of got over a heartbreak, and you know, you, you look at songs like "Dry Your Tears, Keep Moving." "Dry Your Tears" is a kind of almost a subconscious. Um, amusing of, of 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 like you know you'll be all right you know you've got to pick yourself up and it moves into keep moving which is like you know it's 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 a call to arms but it's almost like a subconscious you've got to it's hope but also with a bit of passion and, and and a bit of anger you know when you're like fuck, fuck, come on we've got to do this it's like that last bit of the mountain where you're sort of giving up but you have to pick yourself up uh and that's what i feel that the interesting so for you it's funny because I was just interviewing Natalie and Brulia. That was my eight o'clock one this morning. We we're talking about how often as an artist, you're writing songs that you are looking for. You're writing songs that you're trying to tell yourself messages, you know? So it's interesting for you when you go back and listen to Loving in Stereo, are there messages that you find for yourself? You know, that basically like you get like in terms of, you know, sort of keep picking yourself up, keep moving that it almost becomes as much a message to yourself as it does to an audience. Mm, for sure. I think there's a lot of, you know, when you have, have those realizations with your own music, like you don't really know. We try not to write too specifically. They just sort of come out. Um, and then like, you know, a bit further down the line, you'll go, Oh fuck. Now I know what that one's about. Oh, that means something to me now, you know, and it, I, or, or, or you realize the depth of what you'd really made at a later point, you know? And, um, and I think you know human beings have a have a have a have a way of like you know bringing everything back to your own specific narrative. You know we we love doing that. You know like the Beatles soundtrack yeah. my life. They probably soundtrack your life. You know what I mean? Like it, when you when you listen to it, you put yourself in in the protagonist role. And you know I don't think I don't think John Lennon knew who the hell I was, so he wasn't writing it for me. But like that's the kind of beauty about music. It, it, it soundtracks each individual life, and I think that. That's why we tried to keep the um, the the kind of narratives in, in the themes of the lyrics kind of open ended, so that they they feel like you know you can relate to them. They're not too specific, but they are sort of general emotions or feelings. Interesting. So when you look at the Beatles songs that soundtrack your life, obvious question. But what are the couple that you know? And this also is interesting to me too, right? As you get older, songs change and take on new perspectives because again. You know, you can hear a song like I talked about this with I was doing mm -hmm. a show last year where I talked with artists about protest songs. Right. And as a kid, you hear Stevie Wonder living in the city or Marvin Gaye, what's going on. Yeah. And as a six year old, you like this sounds amazing. It's not until you get to be an adult that you understand or a teenager, the significance and the message of what they're talking about. So like Beatles Help is a perfect example, right? You hear that song as a six-year-old, you're like, yeah. oh my God, this song is so fun. You hear it as a 20 year old and you're like, holy shit, this is about a guy who basically is wanting to kill himself and is asking for help. So are there Beatles songs for you that have really changed or that you now have yeah. a different appreciation for or that you hear differently as an adult? Yeah, I think um, it's, it's a musical thing, really. I think, you know, while, while my guitar gently weeps is always something that, 
you know, I, I, I keep coming back to, and like you've heard, I heard a different version of it, the one where they did it at that gig and Prince kind of solos over the top of it right at the end. I can't remember. You ever seen that video? It's amazing. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Considered kind of just... the greatest guitar solo ever. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 um he just goes nuts on it and it and it's it's you know it's those re-embodiments that kind of bring songs alive in different ways and um you know for me a kind of the Beatles is the Beatles whenever you hear even when you hear that version of it they never it never sounds like the Beatles it always sounds like a cover of the Beatles and, and nobody can ever sound like the Beatles they were so kind of good and it's kind of broken at the same time and I keep going back and listening to songs and. For example, now I know more about production. I'm, I like listen to the songs differently. Like I hear the timings of the vocal. There'll be like a double tracked vocal, and they'll they'll do different timings on it. And you'll be like, "Well, that's a mistake." If I was in the studio, I'd be like, "Do it, do it on the thing." But then you start to learn that imperfection is the thing that makes things beautiful, and you start to kind of bring that into your own work actively. <laughs> so there you go. Fuck, fuck that vocal up. <laughs> Uh, no, Ed, I mean, you know, look, uh, Daniel Lamb was one of the greatest producers in the world, right? He's worked with YouTube, Dylan, and we talked about the fact that, like, you know, you have these happy accidents, things that you can't plan, and then they come in there and they become some of your favorite moments. So for you, what are some of the favorite vocal imperfections on Loving in Stereo? Are those things where it's just like, you know, this wasn't what I wanted, but, you know, this sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, in Keep Moving, there's like a lot of the verse vocals are are kind of, they're almost the demo guides. You know, there's there's, there's parts of the record which like we we couldn't, we, we tried to like re-record vocally, but we, we, and some of them don't quite have lyrics, you know, it goes into the second verse. And in my head, it says, do, do you think you'll find the truth? You know, um, and that's what I hear in it, but I don't know if it's actually saying that on record. And we just have to leave it in there because like, Every time we tried to sing it again, it just didn't have it, you know? Um, so that's kind of fun. There's lots of bits like that for sure. Interesting. All right, let's take this onto the stage before we wrap up. I mean, you know, since like we say, you have a Greek theater date announced here. What are the songs from the album that you guys are most excited to play live? And, you know, look, the other thing is too, especially it feels like these songs, like we talked about how upbeat it is, you know, when you have thousands of people going crazy to it. And especially if you watch the Lala videos from this weekend, you said there was this festival in the UK. Dude, people are just losing their shit. So you bring it out like this to the stage, which is so upbeat and people can get so happy to. What are the songs that, you know, you're most excited to see how people respond to them and, you know, sort of change them when they come on stage? Yeah, I feel like there's a couple of songs on the record which will have that effect. Like uh, there's a song called All of the Time, which is really upbeat, um, which is really fun. And, and there's another one called What Do You Know About Me, which has this really dark, shacky energy, which which we're, enjoying playing in rehearsals and um there's another one called truth which is a single we just put out it's the first sort of weird guitar track we've ever made so uh yeah we'll see all right all now right. i'm curious by the way too because i mean i asked you about favorite sort of uh this just came up this morning as well but favorite sort of uh so we're talking about upbeat favorite happy songs or what are those one or two songs that every time you hear them you can't just not move to, or that it's just like, you could be in the shittiest mood. You just had a fight with your girlfriend. You just had a fight with the label, whatever it is. And then the song comes on and it just is like instantly picks you up. Oh, wow. Uh, instantly picks you up. Uh, there's quite a few different ones. I mean, I've got down, downbeat songs, but upbeat songs. Um, I like dark music, mate. Um, probably <laughs> something by Daft Punk, I'd say. Um, you know, Something off uh, Discovery. Um, 
maybe digital love or, or aerodynamic, you know, like that, that one's a banger. The one that's like, yeah. <laughs> so high life is, you know, something off discovery. Yeah. I'd say high life or aerodynamic on that one. Well, it's interesting too. And we'll wrap up on this, but it's, I mean, again, it's funny that you say you like, you know, you sort of go downbeat. I think for most people, so that's what I was just talking with Natalie about, right? Is the fact that for her, she considers herself a very melancholy person. So she was proudest of the upbeat songs on her record. For you who gravitates to downbeat, is there like a particular satisfaction then or pride of making a record that is more upbeat and sort of contradicts the idea of, like you said, the last record was prompted by, you know, heartbreak and you very much did not want to do that again. So is there a pride in making a record that is so upbeat and so happy because it kind of contradicts your own musical influences? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a difficult one. I like heartbreak music. And, and even though our second record was kind of, you know, it was, de- it was definitely still upbeat in some way. It wasn't like ballads. But, you know, I think, I don't, I don't know. We've made an upbeat record. I don't know if it's, I mean, it's hard to say. I, I still feel there's a lot of like, there's a little bit of doubt in there. There's still like a bit of like tension, you know. It, it's more, it's a, it's an, it's an emotion that we've never really had, which is passion and like anger and 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 determination. It's that real like feeling. I don't know. I've tried to describe that to people. So I, when when we say it's upbeat, it's not it's not overly like, you know, happy sun is shining cheesy. It's got an energy which is still dark to it. It's got a. Um, it's got a passion and intensity and a, and a fire to it, you know, especially with tracks like Fire, No Rules, Talk About It. You know, they're almost burning hot. Interesting. I mean, it's funny. So for you, when you go back and listen to it, what do you take from it, you know, as a complete work? And are there things that, like, you know, that passion and intensity, are there things that you hear in there that surprise you? For sure. I think, like, it, you know, a lot of those tracks came off the cuff. You know, I did a lot of painting um, before as a kid and, I started painting again last year and, and it really sort of taught me to, you know, when you try and make something nice, you try and paint a pretty picture. It, it, it's often really boring and tame and like, cause you, you, you're trying to make it nice. And when I, when I throw paint at the canvas and I'm a lot more um, kind of free with it, it tends to be a lot, a lot more true and honest and, 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 and riddled with kind of real emotion. And that emotion is probably in me, probably, pent up frustration and anger, you know, and, and like these things that like you don't really realize have like been embedded since childhood, you know, depending on your parental situation or how you've been brought up, you know, starting into a psychiatry session here. But <laughs> dude, that's fucking fascinating though, because you no, know, the painting aspect, because this is something that like the, uh, Forbes interview I ran yesterday with Jeff Ament from Pearl Jam, we were talking about the fact that he started as an artist first. And, you know, this time in COVID, for example, he would paint and make music every day. And it's the first time that he ever intertwined the two because it was the first time that, you know, he had the freedom as an artist to do so. So for you, do you find the painting influence the music or do you find the two sort of converge together on this maybe in a way that you did not expect? Well, I think it's, it, it's, it's, I, I never really painted while doing music. I love to do that. I'm going to copy that idea. So thanks. Um, but I feel like with 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 the um, with the with the painting, it's almost like a lesson. You almost uh, you almost kind of learn to kind of you learn about the creative the creativity. You know, you learn about how creativity works. And for me, like my paintings aren't linked to 
you know, a band that is linked to success. You know, the paintings aren't 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 really designed to do that at this point anyway. You know, they're just like I don't really care if I sell them or not. It's not a problem for me, um, which like makes them quite free. And I think you learn a lot from that. You know, it's creativity, but it's not under the scope of what jungle is. You know, it's um, you know, as I said, you learn about the actual outcome of a painting. You know, how how to make something good or bad. You know, and it's all often when you just like you're the most freest and you ain't thinking about it. I, I prefer abstract painting, you know, personally. Um, I, I really revel in the kind of like American 50s sort of abstract scene and stuff like Jackson Pollock and, and things that are just like, you know, Rothko's and, and crazy shit, you know, and, and William de Coining and stuff. It's just like, um, yeah, I like expression. No, that's really cool. But it's funny now because what you were saying, Jeff was saying too, it's like, you know, one of the, you know, people have asked about Chip. He said one of the reasons that he never wanted to put his music and his painting together, because obviously you're talking about a, Pearl, a band like Pearl Jam is so massive. Mm. You know, he was saying is because like he never wanted the pressure of like, are you going to do a show? He's like, I get so much of that with Pearl Jam already. So as an artist who's successful, do you find that having painting allows you an outlet that can be just, you know, creative freedom, like you say, and isn't, there is no expectation or there's no guise of, yeah. Oh, okay. Of course, of course it does. It, it gives you like a, a freedom that is unrivaled, you know, because no, no, you know, people around the band, you know, people are trying to sell the music of the band, you know, management and stuff. They're always like, Oh, can we get the paintings involved somehow? And I'm always like, you can't mix those worlds. You know, I don't want to mix those worlds because again, it's like, it's almost sacred. You know, it's almost like, especially starting painting again, I was like, I found this, creativity that i love that isn't linked to the pressure and success that is then linked to kind of the thing that actually keeps food going into your mouth and a roof over your head um which is you know it's it's, it's weird you know making music it's all you want to do you know for, as a kid you're like oh, all i want to do is just make music for a living like that would be the dream and then when it actually comes true you're like oh well actually comes with all these weird pressures and these weird things around it you know that you're like oh well Last time I checked, it was just standing up on stage and being cool, you know, <laughs> but comes with a whole set of like, you know, accepting, accepting success is one of the hardest things to do, I think, you know, and understanding success and understanding like when I get praised by people, even my family, I'm just like, how the hell do I interpret this? You know, how do I, some people are great at it, but it's like, you know, if somebody gives you a real a compliment, it's sometimes like, <laughs> how, how do you take it? Uh, so now I just have to ask this band because I'm curious and we'll wrap up with it. But I mean, will you be like, do you do shows with your paintings or is it something that you do just for your own sort of benefit or fun? It's nothing that I've done um, properly. No, I just sell, sell them occasionally. If I post them on Instagram and somebody's like, yeah, I'll buy this. I'll be like, yeah, have it. It's taken up too much room in my, sp in my house. So if somebody's going to give me money to take a canvas out of my house, then happy days. <laughs> but, you know, I, painting, I don't, it's, art's weird. Like I care a lot about it, but I'm not overly pretentious with it. You know, it's like, essentially it's like paint on a canvas and if that makes someone feel good it makes someone feel good it's the same as music you know is there anything that you want to add we did not talk about is there anything that we want to talk about um hmm not really i think we've, we've gone quite deep to be honest uh yeah usually try to i mean you know is, it you forbes? Know. is this forbes yeah I was like, Forbes is a money magazine. <laughs> We're talking about all the wrong things. <laughs> nope, not at all. That's actually why it's, it's so funny. I've done two contracts at Rolling Stone. We've talked all over the place. You know, uh, last I was telling Louie, last time we met was at KCRW when yeah. you guys did The Morning Becomes Eclectic. 
But yeah. Forbes, you know, like they literally are like, do whatever the fuck you want. So, I mean, I can ask you a money question. What's the biggest splurge you've ever had? But what's really cool is that there's total, you know, similar to what you were talking about, the freedom of a label. There's no, you know, there's no structure yeah. to it. So is it, so, so this is, is it like a, so Forbes is a generally like a, it's, I, I told my mom, I was doing an interview with Forbes and she's like, Yo, you haven't made that much money. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, I mean, look, I've interviewed everyone from, you know, you two, Willie Nelson, Stevie Nicks to Joan Baez and, you know, Dead Mouse and, and everyone for Forbes. But, you know, like I say, it's funny because Grohl is a friend and, and the first Forbes interview we did, he's like fucking, he gets on the phone. He's like fucking Forbes. He's like, my dad would be so proud. So I don't know if your mom was proud or what. I do get a lot of people who are like, look, mom, I made it on Forbes. But like I said, I can ask one money. What After your success, what was the biggest splurge you, you gave, you know, for yourself? <laughs> Probably some sort of synthesizer. Always something that like will give me some sort of creative joy. Probably some expensive synthesizer, which I probably made a song out of, but that's about it. All right, wait, wait. Let's, okay, let's tie this back with the painting because I, you know, I've been doing so many conversations with musicians about painting. All right. Oh, really? Uh, well, yeah, because there's so many, look, you go back over the years, right? And it's like, you go back all the way to Dylan and Joni Mitchell, Ronnie Wood, you know, John Mellencamp paints, um, Jeff Ament, Dave Navarro, Serge Tankian. I just did an interview with Maxim from Prodigy about his art. I mean, you know, because most creative people are not just creative in one thing. They're yeah, creative yeah, yeah. in multiple endeavors. So all of these musicians are also painters. So we'll make this a Forbes money question. If you could buy any painting, what one painting would you want to buy? Oh, <laughs> wow. Uh, that is a, what one painting would I want to buy? I mean, there's so many great paintings. I probably, I went to a Van Gogh, uh, I'd probably buy a Van Gogh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that, what the, uh, the Starry Night one, I can't remember what it's called. It's very famous. Um, Starry Night Van Gogh. Let me just double check the name of it. Uh, it's it. the, the Starry Night, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's he's like he's funny Van Gogh because he didn't sell a painting when he was alive at all, and now he's like probably the one of the most expensive artists in the world, if not the Van Gogh. I think he is the most expensive. Well, I guess it's either him or, or Picasso, but yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone wants. But to it's funny it, how don't they? <laughs> it's funny how also then that's how he's become a benchmark as well for artists, and you know, obviously there are great musicians like this as well. Nick Drake's a perfect example. I'm obsessed with Nick Drake, and you know no one gave a shit about him in his lifetime. And of course now, you know, every music fan, every cult music fan loves Nick Drake, but Van Gogh kind of became the sort of benchmark for the artist that, you know, was not successful in their lifetime and was only appreciated afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I went to an exhibition of him in um, Antwerp recently, but it's a, uh, it's kind of, he had a crazy life. Yeah. So wait, was it the immersive exhibition or a different one? Yeah, the immersive one, yeah. Um, which is a bit weird because you don't really see any of the pieces real. You know, I want to just see the, the actual things, but they're doing this immersive one. Are they doing this immersive one around the world? In yeah. LA as well? Yeah, no, I, actually, I was supposed to go to it this morning after this interview, but they delayed it because they haven't gotten their fire permits yet. <laughs> <laughs> what are the chances, eh? Yeah, it's chances? over at the old Amoeba store, which I'm sure you know well. Oh, God. Is that, is that gone now? Yeah. Well, no, they moved it. They moved it. Oh, okay. So it's not gone. I thought one of them closed down. No, they moved Amoeba. So, yeah. But cool. What do you want to add, we didn't? Because now, now we've really gone much deeper and we've covered a lot. But, you know, I'm glad we hit upon the painting stuff. Because like I said, that's fascinating to me. Because 
every artist I talk to, you know, it's like they talk about how the two fuel each other. And, you know, look, all sorts, all forms of creativity inspire each other, no question. Mm, for sure. For sure. It's just about having the space and, and, and the right place to do it. You know, I'm always trying to find new spaces to work within and I get into one room and then I'm like, I need to move to another room. I need to, I heard Kanye's camping out in the stadium in Atlanta or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, just as you were told not to go on your political rants, I'm going to leave my Kanye opinions out of it. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Cool, dude. Always a pleasure catching up with you. Excited for the music. Excited to see you guys at, um, you know, Greek theater, you know, and, and I think, you know, being in the States, the one thing I could say is I do feel like outdoor shows have a way better chance of continuing on. So I feel good about that one. Perfect. Amazing. Well, lovely to speak to you, Steve. I have a good one, man. Take it easy. Yeah. All the best. Nice one. Cheers, buddy. Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you have been listening to My Turning Point with Josh Lloyd Watson from Jungle. Why choose proven quality sleep from Sleep Number? Because our Sleep Number 360 smart bed is really smart. It senses your movement and automatically adjusts to help keep you both comfortable. Plus, it's temperature balancing so you stay cool. It's even smart enough to know exactly how long, how well, and when you slept. And to help you get almost 30 minutes more restful sleep per night. Sleep Number takes care of the science. All you have to do is sleep. And now, during our Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed Queen now only $19.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. It takes a lot of ingredients to fix or build a car, like cooking, but without the frozen dinner easy way out. eBay Motors has 122 million parts. It's always the right fitment, so you can follow any recipe to a T. Whether it's a vintage Italian coupe that's classic like grandma's meatballs, or a German luxury car that's as complicated as Oma's Rouladen, to cook up something great in the garage, use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.